Good morning, Grace. Today's scripture reading comes from John thirteen, eighteen through 30. Yep. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. Then it w- when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Good morning. This is an uncomfortable passage on the way to a series of increasingly uncomfortable passages as we get closer and closer to Jesus' crucifixion. As I know some of you know all too well, betrayal can cut deeper than just about anything else. It's why it's often the most powerful scene in movies is the betrayal that comes before the victory. For that reason, it's easy to want to look away when we see it, especially if you have felt it yourself. Nevertheless, it is right for us to consider this passage with our eyes wide open. It is right to do so because it is the word of God and God only gives us what we need. And it is right because it is a powerful picture, this is sometimes hard to hear, of our own rebellion against God. So let me say this, and I'm going to come back to it at the end. If you read this passage and are only appalled at what Judas was about to do, then you do not yet know the sinfulness of your own heart apart from the grace of God. As shocking as it might be to hear, For anyone unfamiliar with the Bible, sin is in all of us such that betrayal is our nature and faithfulness comes only from the grace of God. For those reasons, we're going to continue or we're going to consider Judas's betrayal from the several different angles provided by John. The the best way I can think of to articulate the structure of this passage is that it's as if John had this bag of Judas's betrayal, and is pulling out lessons for us to learn. And so as we do, I hope to help you to see the big idea of this passage. The big one that rules them all is that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, yet he chose him. He chose him to be one of his disciples, to live with him for three years, to minister alongside of him for the glory of God and the good of his people. The main takeaways, therefore, for us are to... Seek the Spirit's help to cry out to the Spirit to help us as we fight for humility, 
as we see the Judasness in ourselves, for perseverance, because it is still the God, grace of God that keeps us from falling back into Judasness and a tight tethering to the Word of God rather than our own sense of things. Let's pray. God, I do pray that this room would be filled with people, even those who have been hurt by betrayal, who maybe are still feeling its sting, especially those who have committed acts of betrayal, which is all of us, at least against you. I pray that we would all, therefore, hear this passage and consider these words with our eyes wide open. Let us let us look at them, that we might come to understand even more the amazingness of the grace of God that forgives us of our betrayal, our treason, our turning our back on the one who made us for his glory. Please help us, help us to see this passage as you mean us to, to get from it all that you would have for us. And above all in that, let us give you thanks and praise for the grace that is ours, that this betrayal precipitated. It is this betrayal that led Christ to the cross. It was the means by which he was able to be crucified in earthly terms. And so help us, help us above all to think freshly of the amazingness of your grace that is ours through Jesus, in part through this betrayal. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My wordle streak broke this week. I was hoping it was uh, a harbinger of the lack of feedback on the microphone, that streak breaking as well. But Several times already in John's Gospel, we've been given predictions and warnings concerning Judas's betrayal. The first was back in chapter 6, quite a while ago on our time. There we read Jesus' words, Did I not choose you? And this is key. Listen to this, because this is going to come back in just a few minutes in this, in this text. Did I not choose you, the twelve? This is Jesus speaking to the twelve, including Judas. Did I not speak, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. More recently, in chapter 12, verse 4, John wrote, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, and he parenthetically explained who that was, he was who was about to betray him. This is, those are John's words. And in our passage from last week, during Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet and his commissioning of them, We were twice warned of the imminent treachery of Judas. Last week, verse 2, during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then again, a little bit later in verse 10, and you are clean, he said to his disciples, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. It's a strange idea. If you've been here with us in John, or if you're familiar with the Bible, Maybe it's not so strange, but it's a strange idea for sure, at least in worldly terms, that God means us to grow in our faith and our hope in him and our sanctification and becoming more like Jesus in considering the betrayal of his own son. Nevertheless, as this passage and the nature of Judas's treachery unfolds, I think you'll quickly see there's a good deal for us to learn here. There's a good deal of help for us in this. And to that end, we're going to begin with the fact that Jesus chose Judas, 
years prior to this to be one of his disciples, even though he knew that Judas would betray him on this evening. As I mentioned in the verses immediately preceding ours, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and charge, charged them to follow with his, to follow his example. He ended his instructions to them, his foot washing, his washing of their feet, and then his instructions to them in light of that with this promise. This was last week. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Our passage begins with an important clarification from Jesus. We said to all 12, if, if you know these things, which you do now because I've told you, blessed are you if you do them. And so our verse Our passage for this morning opens up in verse 18 with this. But I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. And so, Grace Church, do you want to be blessed? Yes, Pastor Dave, I want to be blessed. Who doesn't, right? To be blessed, Jesus gave two requirements. Did you catch them? Verse 17, to know his teachings, number one, and to do them, number two. Jesus knew that Judas would not be among the blessed, for he knew that Judas would only complete the first half of the requirements for the blessing. Although Judas heard the content along with the rest of the disciples, unlike them, he would not do it. Jesus revealed his foreknowledge of this fact in this way for the first time here. What's more, Jesus went on to provide some of the reasoning behind it. What's going on with this? Before we get there, though, I don't want to miss, I don't want you to miss this vital but familiar lesson, especially kids that have grown up in the church or are growing up in the church. Knowing what Jesus has said, which if you're at Grace Church, you know a lot of that. We, we try to teach regularly and consistently and faithful to the Word of God. Knowing what Jesus has said and done are vitally important. You cannot be blessed, Jesus tells us, apart from knowing what he has said and knowing what he meant by it. Knowing what Jesus has said and done are vitally important if we are to be blessed with forgiveness of sins and freedom and reconciliation with God and peace that surpasses understanding. But it is never enough. It is only those who hear and do, Jesus commands, above all, to believe in him who receive and trust in Jesus' promises, who see and savor Jesus' teaching, who are truly blessed. Again, as we return to Jesus' reasoning behind what he's saying about Judas to the disciples, may we learn from Judas to continually speak, seek from his failure that we ought to continually continually seek the Spirit's help to be a people who hear and obey. And so with that, back to Jesus' reasoning. He says, I am not speaking to all of you, and then part of the reasoning is, I know whom I have chosen. Part of his logic behind this. On the surface, the first thing I thought of when I read this, maybe you did too, on the surface, it kind of sounds like Judas was not going to be among the blessed, because Jesus had not chosen him for it. I know I know whom I have chosen. It sounds almost like you're not going to be among them, Judas, because I haven't chosen you for that. Or to flip it upside down, it might seem like Judas would not be among the blessed because Jesus had chosen him not to be. Well, more than likely, however, 
neither of those are what Jesus had in mind. Instead, like I mentioned earlier, consider again the words from chapter 6, verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you? He's saying, I know whom I chose. I chose all 12 of you, including you, Judas. Yet one of you is the devil. And at that time, back in chapter 6, verse 71, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. What does that mean? What it means is that the opening words of verse 18 is not about Judas betraying Jesus because he was chosen to betray Jesus or because Jesus had chosen him not to be faithful to Jesus. It's not what Jesus' main point is. It is rather about Jesus having chosen all 12, even in the knowledge that Judas would one day betray him. Just think about that for a minute. Judas was chosen to walk with Jesus to talk with Jesus, to eat with Jesus, to see Jesus' miracles, to hear Jesus' teaching, to share in the disciples' confidence and ministry and mission, and even, as we just saw, to have his feet washed by Jesus, even though all along Jesus knew that he would eventually betray Jesus. Judas, Jesus chose Judas in full knowledge that it would be Judas's betrayal that would lead to his crucifixion. Therefore, when Jesus spoke of the blessings of obedience, he made sure to make it known that not all of them would receive these blessings. And that leaves us with the question of why then? Why would he, why would he do that? Why would he choose Judas and allow him to experience all of those things, knowing all the while that he would betray him? And the answer comes quickly. Look at 18 and 19. Jesus gives two, and I'll even say three in verse 20, explicit reasons why he would do such a thing. First, verse 18, to fulfill Scripture. And so Jesus tells us, but the Scripture will be fulfilled when Judas betrays me. And here it is. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And that Jesus was quoting Psalm 41.9. And and here's what Psalm 41.9 says. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. As is often the case in the New Testament, if you look too closely at chapter 41, Psalm 41, it's, it's tricky sometimes to understand the New Testament author's claim of an Old Testament fulfillment beyond the basics. But here are the basics. Psalm 41 is a psalm of David, and the heart of verse 9, this, this psalm of David, is an expression of David's grief over the betrayal of his closest friend and his hope in God through it. David's friends, ones he was closest to, ones that he trusted even to come into his own house and sit with him at his own table to eat and drink with him, betrayed him to the point in which they sought to stomp on him, to violently harm him. And all of those things, of course, parallel what Jesus was enduring at the hand or the foot of Judas. Jesus came to stomp on the head of the serpent, but Judas attempted to stomp on his head. And Jesus told his disciples that unknown to David, David wrote Psalm 41.4 for a duel for a dual purpose, both to express his own grief, David's own grief, and hope in God through his trials, and to give words for what Jesus would endure, that he could point the disciples to them as the fulfillment of them. 
Grace, I hope it's easy for you to see that this is a remarkable expression, both of the sovereignty of God over all things, which is why we sang that song earlier, and the fact that the Bible records one grand story of redemption. 66 books over centuries with many different authors telling one grand story of redemption, pointing to Christ. Recent, rightly appreciating this needs to comfort us in our affliction. What greater affliction could there be than to have one of your best friends turn you over to be crucified? Rightly appreciated, this needs to comfort us in our own affliction as we see God's great purpose in that. It ought to stir us to worship, and it ought to help us read our Bibles even more carefully. The second reason Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve, according to verse 19, even though he knew Judas would betray him, was to further strengthen the faith of the eleven, strengthen their faith through showing that it was a fulfillment of prophecy and strengthen it in another way as well. Look at 19. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, Christ, Son of God. John records Jesus saying and doing this several times, giving the disciples information. So not only did this fulfill prophecy from the past, Jesus was making prophecy of sorts of what was to come telling them in advance what would happen to strengthen their faith. In this way, Jesus chose Judas and foretold his betrayal so that his followers would have yet another example of the mighty and unfailing power of God. As heart-wrenching as this must have been for Jesus, which we'll come to in a minute in verse 21, he did it along with all that it entailed as a blessing for his people, including you and I. In a sense, in a pretty lame sense, to be honest, it's like Babe Ruth pointing to the stands or the golfer walking towards the hole as his putt is only halfway there or the basketball player launching a deep three and turning around because he is calling his shot. Jesus is calling his shot here. But instead of doing it moments before in a simple childlike game for selfish glory, he did so centuries before. In the course of world events, to help his disciples behold the unmatched glory of God, to strengthen their faith for all that he knew was to come as they continued on the mission that he had given them. Grace, our God is a gracious God, powerful and mighty. He loves his people. He loves those whose hope is in Jesus. He loves you and I with an unparalleled servant, sacrificial love. And so we... We must humble ourselves before him and marvel at him and trust him even more fully. If he can turn this betrayal of the Son of God, which led to the crucifixion of Jesus into the salvation of the world, we can trust him. And so that gets us to verse 20. I told you that he gives three helps. The first was fulfilled prophecy. The second was a type of prophecy that would be fulfilled. And now in verse 20, it's a somewhat parenthetical expression of Jesus' reasoning for telling the disciples about Judas. Jesus, again, had just revealed revealed to the disciples that he had chosen Judas in spite of a certain knowledge of Judas' betrayal to strengthen them, to strengthen their faith when it came to pass, in order, according to verse 20, to help them endure in the mission that he was sending them on. And so with that in mind, listen again to verse 20, and here in it, another strengthening promise of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, I'm sending you, disciples, I'm sending you, Grace Church, 
Whoever receives you when you go out in my name, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In other words, in doing the things that Jesus had called and commanded them to do, in serving one another, foot washing like fashion, and the world around them, and proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth, the disciples Jesus knew and promised would encounter stiff opposition, as will all who obey Jesus in these ways. And to help them persevere in faith through that opposition, Jesus offered these gifts. Again, the, the fulfillment of Scripture, the promise of something that would be fulfilled. And here, third, in verse 20, he promised that their mission was from God himself. Jesus, again, was about to commission them shortly to a mission that entailed certain suffering. wanted them to stand firm when hardship came, and he wanted them to do so here in the knowledge that they were going in the name and according to the will of the Father and Son. It is one thing, Grace, to be sent on a hard but good mission. It's another thing to be sent on a hard but good mission, marked by breadcrumbs of grace all along the way by the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth and in his pleasure. All right, to this point, to this point in this passage and even the ones before leading up to this, Jesus' logic and kindness are evident. His logic was that I'm going to tell you these things in advance to strengthen you for what's ahead. And his kindness is in the fact that he chose to endure all of this at great cost to himself for you and for me. Can you imagine, Grace? Just think about this. Can you imagine willingly spending so much of your life this close, as close as Jesus was to Judas, with someone you knew would treacherously hand you over to death? It is a special measure of kindness in Jesus to endure these things for our sake. As we saw a few weeks ago, however, perfect logic and kindness, indeed perfect righteousness, does not take away the sting of sin. Remember that. Would you please remember that? And especially not the sting of sinful betrayal. And for that reason, for a third time in John's Gospel, we're told of Jesus' troubled soul. Back in chapter 11, at Lazarus, around Lazarus' death, and in chapter 12, at the thought of the cross, after saying these things, verse 21, Jesus was troubled in spirit. I pressed on this quite a bit in chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12. So I'm not going to re-preach that part of that sermon. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus comes back to it, so I'm going to come back to it just briefly. Jesus perfectly demonstrates in his troubled spirit two things. Would you remember these? Is your spirit troubled? Have you, have you felt pain at the hand of another? Remember these two things. True godliness is always troubled by evil. True godliness is always troubled by evil, but second... Jesus modeled both of these. True godliness is troubled by evil in a distinct way. It is a false understanding of Christian maturity that teaches when treachery comes against us or someone we love, it ought not to affect us. It is a lie, Grace, to suggest that the most God-honoring response to being betrayed is to not be hurt. At the same time, not every expression of hurt is equally godly. A sinful response means being hurt primarily, maybe even exclusively on a horizontal level. It means responding to that hurt with your own sin or sin of your own, and it means being hurt to the point of despair, hopelessness, ruin, as if God is not working even in that for those he loves. 
but a godly response, which we see in Jesus, to being hurt. It means being hurt, but being mainly concerned with the glory of God being disguised by that person in this situation and being lost in their sin. Again, Jesus modeled both for us. Judas would betray Jesus. Jesus knew it. Yet, he chose him anyway for glory and good. Even still, his heart was greatly troubled at the thought of what was to come. You may have noticed. Did you notice this? You may have noticed this. Although Jesus knew from eternity past that Judas would betray him, and if you remember, John is writing his gospel with the benefit of hindsight, so John puts these little examples in there for us. He, he tells us along the way. But John didn't know at this time, and none of the other disciples knew at this time that this was going to happen. At the point of 1321, none of the disciples except Judas himself knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus in the next little bit. Expanding on what he meant when he said, I am not speaking of all of you, Jesus went on to say, John went on to say, Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Grace, have you, have you ever had to long endure news of significant suffering? What I mean is you, you knew about some type of suffering that you had to carry by yourself for some length of time. Maybe it was a cancer diagnosis. You, you couldn't, tell somebody or something like that, or the loss of a loved one? Have you ever had to walk around with a heavy heart while while everyone around you just sort of went about life as normal, telling jokes and laughing? Is It's okay that they did, but they probably wouldn't have if they had known what you were carrying around. We can only imagine what Jesus, the weight of what he was carrying at this point. We can only imagine how impacted how it impacted his interactions with his followers to have such a rightly troubled soul. He'd been up front several times already about the fact that he would be killed, although they still clearly didn't really understand that. But this is the first time he'd revealed to any of his disciples that his crucifixion would come about through the betrayal of one of his closest followers, at least like this, through one of them. This had to have sent shockwaves through the disciples to hear this like this at this time. Can you imagine hearing such a thing? But what really stands out to me is the fact that in spite of all that they had been through together, none of them yet seemed to have any clue who it was. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, the guy writing this, reclining at table at Jesus' side said, whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So John's laying next to Jesus. Simon Peter says, John, ask him. Who is he talking about? So the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Again, two things I want you to see plainly. Number one, the appearance of godliness is not the same as godliness. The appearance of godliness is not the same as godliness. And second, Humility recognizes that it is God's grace alone that ends and prevents our betrayal. Let me tell you a little bit more about each of those. The appearance of godliness is not the same. It is remarkable that no one had any idea who Jesus was talking about. Even at this point, over three years into Jesus' ministry, mere hours before the betrayal, the disciples didn't even suspect Judas. 
it's clear that they were confused about a lot of things. And so it's not entirely shocking. It's also clear that most of the disciples were still struggling with things of their own. So it's not entirely shocking. But the fact that Judas was able to completely blend in is sobering. It's sobering to recognize that wolves can be in our midst undetected like that for so long. It's sobering to recognize that someone can have that much of an appearance of godliness with a heart that is satanically wicked. And so to further drive home the point that they really didn't suspect Judas, look at verse 27. After he had taken this morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said that to him. So the rest of the disciples are sitting here thinking, they apparently heard Jesus say that, but they didn't know why. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy some of the things we need for the feast. Others were thinking perhaps it was Jesus had commissioned him to go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. After being entered by Satan and dismissed by Jesus to betray him, the disciples still only assumed good things. No one wondered if he was going to betray him. They still only assumed good things of of Judas. Again, Grace, get your head around this. We need to be sobered by Satan's ability to mask his evil and disguise his intentions that Judas could have been undetectably entered by Satan, prevents us from thinking of evil in exclusively recognizable ways. You would think they would have noticed a change on his face, at least, or something. But remember this. I had planned to unpack this more, but I ran out of word. word, My word count got too high. Satan can present himself like a fiery dragon, a mass murderer, or a child trafficker, to be sure. But he can also look like a kindly grandma, a pious pastor, pastor, and a well-intentioned disciple. The appearance of godliness is not the same as godliness. That leads to the second aspect of the disciples' confusion that's especially worth noting. Humility recognizes that it is God's grace alone that ends and prevents our betrayal. In John's account, it's clear that none of the disciples suspected any of the other disciples as the obvious betrayer. But what's more, do you know what Matthew says about this? You remember that? Matthew 26, 22? And the disciples, all 12, when they heard this news that one of them would betray Jesus, were very sorrowful and began to say to Jesus one after another, you know what they said? Is it I? Is it me? I think the most shocking part of all of this is the fact that when they were told that one of them would betray Jesus, each one of them wondered if it was them. I said this at the beginning, and I told you I'd come back to it. Here's me coming back to it. If you read this passage and are only appalled at what Judas did, then you don't know yet the sinfulness of your own heart apart from the grace of God. I said that in large measure because of this verse. Not only did they not know that it was Judas or even suspect him, they also did not know if it might be them. From this we must learn humility. The beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the heart of the Christian faith, is the terrible news that we have betrayed God, that we are all Judas from birth. 
It's what it means to acknowledge the Bible's teaching concerning the sinful nature of mankind. We must learn that betrayal is our nature until the grace of God comes upon us to give us a new nature. What's more, even after the grace of God has come upon us, as we place our faith in Jesus, even then, when it's come upon us to help us recognize and despise and confess our betrayal and turn from it and place our faith in Christ alone, it is still the grace of God that keeps us from turning back to our Judas ways. So be humble. As I mentioned, Judasness looks different in everyone. But it is in all of us until by grace through faith in Christ we are freed and forgiven. Brought, as we learn this morning, into union with Christ. In our text from last week, in verse 2, John wrote these words, During supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. In our passage for this week, in verse 27, John described the continuation of Satan's work. Satan had been working in Judas to put it into his heart, and now it found its fulfillment. So when the morsel dipped, the morsel he had dipped, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon. After he had taken it, Judas, Satan entered him. The main thing for us to see is that Satan gradually worked on Judas to the point that Judas had at this point determined to fully cooperate with Satan. If there is one thing that you never want to hear said of you, it's that. God would use even this for his glory and the good of his people. God would use this indeed to accomplish the greatest glory and the highest good, as it's what led Jesus to the cross. And yet, This was real, vile, damnable evil by both Judas and Satan. What's more, they were in this moment of treachery. Jesus will say, we're coming to it in chapter 17. He came that we might have oneness with one another and with Christ as Christ has oneness with the Father. But at this moment, in this moment of treachery, Judas had determined to function with a oneness with Satan that God had made for him to have with him. The kind of oneness God made for good, Satan and Judas conspired together to use to commit high treason. As dramatic as it sounds, this is the choice that we all face every day as well. Will we align ourselves in oneness with the God of glory and faith in his Son who died for our sins through the power of the Holy Spirit, or will we align ourselves in oneness with Satan, the evil one? Satan's work on Judas helps us to see that it is not always easy to see and that he is never content with a little bit of destruction. It's not always easy to see when he's doing his work on us, we see in Judas. And he is never content with a little bit of destruction. He is a master of disguises, and he is always seeking to completely devour. Finally, verse 30, and even more ominously, if you weren't disturbed enough yet, here we go. John closes the scene with a declaration that Judas immediately went out, These are the kinds of words where some kind of music happens, ominous music in the background, and it was night. Now, that that means, actually, that it was nighttime, and that becomes important in just a little bit. But for John, the contrast between day and night, between light and dark, is one of the key features of his gospel. His primary reason for writing his gospel was that his readers might believe that Jesus is the Christ and therein find life in him. But what's the way he frames that up? 
A critical piece of that story, as John tells his gospel, is that we are all born into darkness, the darkness of sin. Why do we need to be saved? Why, why do we need to believe in Jesus to find life? Because we've all been born into the darkness of sin, unable to see the light of the glory of God in Jesus. It is as if we are born in perpetual night. In contrast, Jesus came that we might come, Jesus came that mankind might come into the light of day, which is found in him alone. And so we read passages like, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In John 8, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John 9, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And in John 11, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day that is in me, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because light is not in him. In John 12, I have come into the world so that whoever believes in me might not remain in darkness. I hope this makes clear that John's closing statement in this section, and it was night, is chock full of symbolism. Two in particular. First, it symbolized the fact that Judas, in walking out of the house to betray Jesus, was forsaking the light of the world for the last time and fully embracing the darkness of death. And second, more importantly for us, it symbolized the fact that the light of the world, Jesus, was about to willingly plunge himself into the darkness of night in order to fully and finally overcome it for all who would receive him. More than merely making a factual statement about the fact that it was no longer day, John was letting his readers know that things would get horribly worse before they would get infinitely better. The big idea of this passage is that Jesus knew that Jesus would betray him, and yet for the glory of God and the good of you and I, and all of his people, all who would trust in him, he chose him anyway. And from that, we ought to earnestly seek the Spirit's help to fight for humility, perseverance, and to be tethered in all things to the word and good news of Jesus Christ.